October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, Episode 15, Sister Betsy. Last time, we talked about Ellen White's landmark vision in Lovett's Grove, Ohio. It's what we call the Great Controversy Vision, where she perceived the whole story of the Bible from the fall of Lucifer to the new heavens and new earth at the end of Revelation. We also met M.B. Chakowsky, the colorful Polish priest who became an Adventist before going dark and working in Europe for a number of years, starting churches and taking names. We noted how surprised the Adventists were to discover years later that they had fellow believers in Europe, because Chakowsky never bothered to tell anyone. Oh well. This time, however, we are finally getting around to the issue we've been building up to for several episodes. The money. Ever since John Loughborough and J.N. Andrews quit and moved to Wacon back in 1856, this issue has been casting its shadow over the whole movement. To be a Sabbatarian Adventist preacher is to be gone from your wife and kids for weeks and months at a time. You traveled at your own expense. Churches could give you money, but it often wasn't enough to cover expenses. It was unsustainable, to say the least. Preachers had to stop preaching and go get a job mowing hay or something for at least a few months before they could head out again to preach. The net result was that the message was going out slowly. To James White and others who had a bird's-eye view of the situation, it undoubtedly felt a bit like driving over a bumpy road, except that, you know, cars hadn't been invented yet. James summarized the problem in his memoirs. Quote, In the early stage of the cause, our people had no system upon which to act in support of ministers. Those who were disposed to give anything gave what they chose. For a time, our ministers were quite well sustained by a few liberal souls, while the majority excused themselves from doing anything. Ere long, it became evidence that these liberal ones were becoming weary of this inequality, and they began to withhold their support. J.B. Frisbee and S.W. Rhodes were preaching through Michigan when they reported to the Review that their expenses had been about $4.12, but that they had only received from the churches $3.85. They said, quote, We do not state this to complain, but that the church may think of these things. Brethren have done much better in times past. End quote. Today, those seem like ridiculously small amounts of money, but put yourself in their shoes. A nice coat was $20 or so, so losing out even on 30 cents on this trip and 50 cents on the next trip and 25 cents on the next trip adds up. So why 1859? Why are we finally getting around to solving this issue now? Why couldn't they have resolved it back in 1856 or 1857 when it first became apparent that this was a problem? To understand this question, we have to frame the money issue in context. Do you remember how much these guys were allergic to any sort of organization? Many of them called that sort of thing Babylon. So long as there were a critical mass of believers with memories of getting kicked out of their churches in 1844, they were skeptical of any effort to organize themselves into such a church as they left. They were afraid that they would end up with a set of creeds and beliefs and lose that flexibility to believe whatever it is that God wanted them to believe. Of course, 
James and Ellen had those same memories, too, but they were leaders in the movement, and they recognized that their mission demanded some kind of organization. Hadn't they needed Sabbath conferences back in the 1840s to spread the word? Hadn't the publishing of the Review and other papers been instrumental in keeping the movement together? Hadn't the general conferences they had been calling once or twice a year been absolutely essential in keeping the movement focused on the mission? Even still, any organization that was going to collect and distribute money represented a huge step that would be difficult to undo. This sort of organization is permanent and will require increasing levels of sophistication. It wasn't a step to be taken lightly, and it probably wouldn't have been taken if the mission didn't absolutely require it. Underlining it all was the feeling, as Frisbee and Rhodes mentioned, that, quote, brothers have done better in the past. It was a mystery to be sure, for how could the movement be growing as it had and yet not be able to support its workers as it used to? The only answer that occurred to James and the others was that the people were Laodicean. They were lukewarm, content, comfortable, unwilling to sacrifice as they used to. This feeling was ominous, as it seemed possible the movement could stall out at this point. Economic times were hard, and that seemed to be everyone's reason for not giving more. But hadn't the believers always managed to find a way? Hadn't they always sacrificed? The straw that broke James White's back was a letter Moses Hull wrote the review from Iowa. Hull wrote that if he could have afforded more books to sell at his meetings, he could have sold another $200 worth. James always championed the books, and for him it was a clear indictment. People hadn't been supporting Moses Hull enough, and as a result, it hamstrung his preaching efforts by that much. James wrote that, quote, Language will not express the anguish of spirit we feel as we pen these lines. We look over the vast harvest field in the West, where in almost every school district may be found two or three or perhaps a score or two who are ready to receive the truth. And the body of those to whom God has committed the last message and who are responsible for its spread is stupid, worldly, covetous, and almost inactive, end quote. He went on to say, quote, Satan seems to have the control of the purses of the church, with very few exceptions. Repeated disappointments are saddening and discouraging our preachers. They have generally moved out expecting to be sustained by their brethren in their arduous work, but their brethren have often failed to do their duty. Disappointment has been the sad lot of our preachers, and now several of them have sunken down into poverty, broken down health, and discouragement. Should the church freely hand out to sustain the cause the amount of the annual taxes on their property, there would be in the Lord's treasury double the amount wanted to sustain the cause in all its departments. End quote. James is recognizing two things here. First, he recognizes that this was a spiritual problem, a heart problem. Generosity comes from commitment, and if we are being less generous, then it must be because we are less committed. As a result, the preachers are less committed because they have to go take a break and go work out in the fields, and so the dominoes fall. Second, he recognized that it was an organizational problem. James makes the comment that if the church members would just give the amount they pay in property taxes, 
the movement would have twice as much money as they would need. It was an offhand comment, to be sure, but an important one. Because it plants the seed, if only we had a means of collecting funds regularly, like the government does, we'd be fine. The mention of property taxes in particular was interesting. Property taxes represented two things that appealed to James White. They were collected regularly, as we said, and thus they could be counted on, and they were the means of spreading the burden around evenly. Property taxes weren't that expensive. It was a nominal sum, but it snowballed into a big sum when everyone had to pay it. That meant the tax burden was spread pretty evenly. The problem the Sabbatarian Adventists had was that there were a lot of people who didn't give anything, or who gave very little, and then a few relatively wealthy people who had to cough up a lot of money. And let's face it, the movement wasn't exactly appealing to millionaires. Many of the people who joined were on the poorer side, which meant that, as the movement grew, those few wealthy people had to pay a larger and larger share. So how do we fix this? It begins with, what else? A conference. As the de facto theologian in residence, J. N. Andrews was summoned to study the issue with John Byington, James White, J. H. Wagner, and others to figure out if the Bible has any sort of guidance. It took them all of two days. Loughborough would later say that Andrews and company concluded that, quote, the tithing system is just as binding as it ever was, end quote. What our friend Loughborough is reading some later events back into this moment. Andrews and company actually reached the conclusion that the New Testament model that Paul invented was a good one to follow. Paul counseled the churches to set some money aside each Sunday for the support of poor believers. Building on this, Andrews and company came up with a plan which came to be known as systematic benevolence, or Sister Betsy if you want to be cute. Go ahead, be cute. There were three recommendations to Sister Betsy, which reached a general conference later that summer. Number one, each man from 18 to 60 years old would set aside somewhere between 2 cents and 25 cents every week. Each woman from 18 to 60 years old would set aside 1 cent to 10 cents weekly. And finally, number three, each brother and sister would set aside between 1 cent and 5 cents each week per $100 worth of property that they own. Was this plan affordable? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially because by the time the plan arrived to be voted on by a general conference, Andrews and company had lowered the floor from five cents to two cents for men and from two cents to one penny for women. Best I can tell, an average weekly wage for a laborer in 1860 was a little shy of six dollars a week. So asking for, on average, about 13 cents is asking for 2% of that man's income. Of course, if you were a carpenter or a blacksmith, you made almost twice as much. So no sweat there. It was a remarkably affordable plan for men and for women. It's the third provision, though, the one that called for a penny to a nickel to be set aside each week for every $100 of property they own that we need to put in historical context. Property taxes had become the biggest source of revenue for cities and states at this point in America. Keep in mind that this was long before income taxes and all of that. Let me just give you an idea of how property taxes had grown. In 1841, in Ohio, Michigan's friendly neighbor, 
They set their property taxes at just 12.5 cents for every $100 of property that you had. That's 1841. In 1851, 10 years later, they tripled that amount to 36 cents for every $100 of property that you owned. It brought Ohio's revenues from just $90,000 in 1831 to nearly a million dollars 20 years later in 1851. And this doubling and tripling of property taxes was happening everywhere. That said, Sister Betsy did ask for her nickel or penny every week, whereas the government only collected these 36 cents once a year. So that third provision did add up, but if you didn't own property, you didn't even worry about it. It was easily affordable, even if you did. When the General Conference was meeting to consider this issue later that June, Rhodes spoke up and said that his only criticism was that the recommendations were too low. And these were all recommendations. What Andrews did was take the New Testament principle that Paul established and then went and tried to find a practical application for its use. No one claimed that the whole idea was written on golden plates and handed to Andrews. And with that reference, I'm aware that I just lost our sole Mormon listener. Sorry, dude. Now, that said, when the plan was adopted by the churches, unity was expected. It became a moral duty. In 1861, James White would call this heaven's plan. Systematic benevolence, as its name suggests, tried to balance two ideas. First, that giving should be systematic. It had to be regular. Leaders had to be able to expect a certain amount of income so that they could make plans for the future. Second, it had to be benevolent. Andrews was clear in his study that the Apostle Paul never demanded a fixed sum from people. He simply told them to give as the Lord inspired them to give. That's why they recommended that believers give between a couple of pennies and a quarter every week. That guidance gave the leadership a rough amount of what to expect, while giving the believers a rough goal to be giving. If they couldn't save a pair of pennies a week, fine. If they could save more, fine. So here we have a plan. What next? Andrews and company brought it before the Battle Creek Church, which heartily approved it, of course. The Battle Creek Church announced in the review that they had accepted the plan and recommended to all of the other churches that they do the same. In June of 1859, a general conference assembled and also voted unanimously to accept systematic benevolence. And with that motion passing, somewhere out there, John Loughborough had to be jumping up and down. That wasn't the end of the issue, however. While James had tried to get representatives from all corners of the country, it's obvious he didn't get them all. So when he and Ellen took a three-month tour of New England that fall, he invited every church he stopped and visited to join the Systematic Benevolence Plan. There was some resistance at first, some confusion, but eventually everyone got on board and the plan worked just fine. It was tweaked over the years, but it met the needs of the moment and oiled the right wheels to keep the movement, well, moving. 1859 was the year of systematic benevolence. It was a huge achievement in the development of the movement. It was one of these milestones in Adventist history, like James White's desire to start the Review and Herald, that proved pivotal to the future success of the movement. It was still too young, too immature to absorb very many bad decisions, and so it was critical that when the movement came to the crossroads that they made the right choice. 
systematic benevolence was the right choice. Everyone in leadership knew that they were about to lose a number of their preachers if they didn't do something. And as James said in his memoirs, some of the wealthier Adventists were growing fed up with carrying the load themselves. They were getting burned out, the preachers were getting burned out, and Sister Betsy had come in time to save the day. It was a huge step toward formal organization, but it was only a first step. James White was still legally liable for the printing press and the offices, even if they did have a publishing committee set up to oversee it. The only way to avoid this was to move toward legal incorporation, which was the very thing these Adventists had feared the most for so long. That's what they called Babylon. They didn't want to be just another church. But as always, their mission seemed to be demanding it. First thing is first, however. If we're going to organize, what should we call ourselves? Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist history content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>